what a fantastic morning already. You doing all right? Good, good. Glad you're doing all right. We're going to be in Galatians 3 in just a moment. If you want to go ahead and uh, grab a Bible and turn there. If you don't uh, have a Bible with you, we do place uh, black hardback Bibles underneath the seats, under your seat and around the seats, or the seats around you. So feel free to grab one of those. Um, Galatians is in the New Testament after the Gospels, um, after Acts and Romans and First and Second Corinthians, you get to Galatians. So um, to give you a moment just to go ahead and turn there. And, uh, and fair warning, we'll only be here for a moment this morning, then we're going all over the place. So uh, it's going to be one of those kind of mornings. If you've got your sermon notes out, you can see uh, we're going to cover uh, from cover to cover this morning. Um, and so uh, as you learn to read the Bible as a believer, um, you begin to discover that, that every page, every phrase, every word um, on some level is, is full of gold wisdom for the soul. And you'll read things that maybe you've read before, and as you read them again, God delivers uh, in a beautiful way. He speaks to the depths of our soul. He shows us things. Um, and so oftentimes when I'm teaching, studying the Bible, I compare it to gold mining, that um, we're gold mining in a book that is full of gold. We know that we're going we're to receive gold. Occasionally, though, you come across these beautiful gold nuggets that help pull the whole story together. And so we find one of those in Galatians chapter 3, which is where we're going to be this morning, verses 7, 8, and 9. And so last week, um, we saw where Paul, from, uh, from his uh, experience with Peter and Barnabas and the other apostles, um, where Paul talks about how when we add to this beautiful gospel we have from Jesus, it creates division in the church. Um, a type of social class system, if you will, when we add layers to it, things you have to do to be accepted by God, anything we add to the gospel inadvertently creates division. This week we're going to see from the fullness of the Bible, specifically Galatians 3, but the fullness of the Bible, um, why this is such a big deal to God. Uh, we're going to see that um, the gospel isn't just a salvation plan for one person. Um, maybe you've heard this before, that if you were the only person on earth, Jesus still would have died for you on the cross. Now, while that fully expresses the love that God has for you, it doesn't fully express the gospel. That from the inception, the gospel, the plan that God has enacted to rescue, has been a, a rescue plan for the nations, for multitudes, for multiple ethnicities and nationalities, different colors of skin, different languages, different tribes. That that's the fullness of God's love. So while his love for me is individual, if I only see it that way, I am only seeing a small sliver of the fullness of how God loves the nations. And so this morning in Galatians 3, uh, we're going to read verses 7 through 9, and then we're going to take off from there. Uh, let's start in verse 7. We're going to see Paul make some connections here for us. Paul begins in verse 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Sons of Abraham was a phrase used to express um, those who were Jewish by birth. True sons and daughters of Abraham, descendants of the Hebrew nation, the Jewish people. And so Paul says, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Verse 8, And the scripture, now Paul's beginning to talk about our whole Bible, he's speaking specifically at this point about the Old Testament as he writes parts of the New Testament. And so he says, and the scripture, specifically the Old Testament, foreseeing that God would do something, that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, 
In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, we're going to spend the rest of our time today talking about what Paul just did. Okay, And so on the surface, he quoted a phrase from the Old Testament, from Genesis chapter 12, which is where we're going next. If you want to flip there, you can do that. Genesis is the first book in your Bible, chapter 12. He just quoted a phrase from a conversation that God is having with a man named Abraham. Okay, Abraham, the patriarch, the one who becomes the father of the Hebrew nation. His children's 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 children become a people group, a nation, a nationality. These are the Jews, these are the Hebrews, the Israelites. And so Paul just quoted a phrase from that conversation way back in Genesis 12 and said that God was preaching the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Do you see what Paul just did? He just connected what we're reading in Galatians 3, what this New Testament church was receiving by way of letter, connected it with something way back in the beginning. And so we're going to go to there to Genesis 12 in just a second. Now, when you hear the word gospel, just to give you some bearings, the word um, literally means good news, okay? Um, but when we use it in a formal sense, it's um, most specifically referring to the gospel accounts, the narrative accounts of the life of Jesus. It's actually its own genre of literature. It is the accounts that are about Jesus, the Son of God. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospels, you can see where they get their name from. These are narrative accounts of Jesus. So when we open them, we expect to find... Elements of the gospel, right? What we call the gospel. We expect to find a lot of uh, Jesus' teachings and, and his, his examples and his experiences there. But what, um, what actually happens as you open to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, is this. It's almost like icons on the desktop of the word of God, if you will. You click on one. As you open up a gospel, you begin to find Jesus leading us to look at the whole counsel of God's word as the gospel story. One meta-narrative, one big story of God coming to rescue the nations. Uh, the Gospel of Matthew is big on this. Matthew's always quoting Jesus, quoting the Old Testament, showing how Jesus is the fulfillment, as Paul just said, of all the scriptures. Okay, now what Paul did is he jumped all the way back to Genesis 12. It's a really significant place in the Bible, in the story of God. And ultimately, before we move forward, what we're going to see is this, that the Bible isn't the story about us. I know we like to read it that way. We open it, we want to find us on the pages. Where, where am I here in this story? And the, ultimately, the, God, the, the, the Bible isn't the story of Moses or Abraham or David. The story is about Jesus. The whole story is about Jesus. We find hints of him in Genesis chapter 1. This where the Gospel of John, that's where he begins, in the beginning. And he tells us Jesus was in the beginning, creating in the beginning. So, right? So we know that they're all the way in Genesis, back to Genesis 1, we find this foreshadowing, this um, uh, reflection, if you will, of Jesus in the scriptures. Now, so if the Bible isn't about these characters, who is the Bible about? The Bible is about, if you're taking notes, the Bible is about Jesus from cover to cover, which is about what we're about to do. So now we're going to go back to Genesis 12, and we're going to look at this conversation between God and Abraham, and look at this phrase that Paul just quoted uh, from the Old Testament. So in Genesis chapter 12, let me set this up for us. Um, so we're really on, early on in the, in the story of humanity. We've just finished two really big events, the flood. From the flood comes Noah and his three sons, okay? 
Uh, and then what happens after that is we get the account of the tower and the city of Babel. Okay, and this is where uh, man comes together, mankind unites together, which is how we were originally cre- designed and created to be together, working for the glory of one thing. However, the thing that man was working for was his own glory. It's quite an ironic story that the, 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 the people, the inhabitants of earth had gathered into this great city to build for themselves a great name. And the icon of the city was a great tower. I was just thinking about all of human history and how many times over and over and over again that has been the human course. Even to this day, right, our culture is iconed by our biggest cities and our biggest cities are known for their biggest towers. Whether you're talking about Dubai or New York City, Right? And so in 2000, uh, 9-11, September 11th, uh, 2001, let's make sure I get my dates right, um, an attack on our country came against what? Two of our towers. And so it doesn't matter if you're talking about an Egyptian culture and the pyramids, a Native American culture with the totem poles, right? The icon of what we can achieve, right, is, is uh, portrayed in our towers and what we can create to show and make a great name for ourselves. And so this is not a new attempt by man. But God does something in the midst of man attempting to build a name for himself. God steps in and confuses their language. And so one day, they're working hard. Everybody has a job. The, the city's coming together. The tower's going up. And the next day they show up, nobody can speak to one another. And as you can imagine, chaos. This is the birth of ethnicity. This is where people begin to separate. Wait a second, we need to take a step back. I can't talk to anybody, and maybe I find you and I can draw some pictures. We can begin communicating, so I find community with you. And so we kind of set up our camp, and before you know it, we're creating our own little subculture here. And from here, it's, the Bible says that mankind spread across, began to spread across the face of the earth, divided by what? Our language. Still, one of the most significant cultural barriers today is language. We'll be in the Philippines next June. And one of the hardest and most difficult barriers we face there is language. Um, I'll just give you an example. We were, I was with the team there um, this time last year. We were just getting back. And, um, and so when we were there, I'd been in foreign countries before where, um, where language is a barrier, but I'd never seen so much intimidation. And, uh, and it happened with the kiddos. Normally in a, in a foreign country, the kids are really welcoming to visitors, and there's, there's a lot of exchanging and, and giving away candy. But they were very standoffish in this uh, this village kind of caught me off guard, and, I, and after about three or four days, I pulled one of the teachers aside from the village, and I asked about it, and she explained to me that the English language is not just a, a practical barrier, it's actually an intimidation tool from the government, and I began to notice as I traveled through the Philippines that all the federal um, buildings and markings, everything's in English, and so you have to be highly educated and part of the in crowd to know English, and if you don't, it's an intimidation, and so these little Filipino children are growing up in villages where the government has left their stamp in some fashion on their village, and it's in English, and so there's a lot of intimidation because of that language barrier, right? And so to this day, what happened in Genesis 11 has set us up for division, this, this obstacle that we have to overcome to see the gospel reach the nations. So what happens then is right after God confuses the language, um, the Bible begins to follow the lineage of Shem, one of Noah's sons. And so ten generations later, we get to Terah, the father of Abraham, and Genesis 12 begins the story of Abraham. So ten generations after Noah, we have Abraham. So what happens now is Abraham's a grown man. He's got a wife. 
He's still living uh, under his father's roof, so to speak, living with his family, which is very common, right, for this culture. Uh, And so God speaks to Abraham in the midst of this. This is Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, this is what he went by, for God changed his name. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, from your kindred, and your father's house. Just a chapter away from the confusion of languages, people beginning to to separate themselves according to language, right? We're just 10 generations removed from Noah. And so God says to Abraham, leave all the things that you're comfortable with and all the things that you're confident in, all the things you're familiar with, leave those things, your country, your kindred, your father's house, to the land that I will show you. Now, this is not a communal culture. Right? This is not, okay, let's book our, our tickets and let's get everything packed away and, and call the moving company. Uh, this is a, uh, a very primitive, um, if you will, third world culture. Uh, and so moving is a big deal, big event, pulling things together, loading things up, loading the animals. And so, so Abraham responds, and we'll see in just a moment. So go take this journey to the land that I'm going to show you. Come on, God. Can you give me any more information than that? No. Because what was the point? Come and go with me. I'll do the deciding of where we go. What I want you to do is come follow. Verse 2, and then God makes a promise. And Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I love that the word if is not present here. This is what I will do. I'm going to do this. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So now we just read that phrase that Paul was quoting, right? And Paul told us in Galatians 3 that God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham when he said, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, the, 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 the word from the Hebrew language that gets translated here, families, is a really good translation. Uh, there's a Greek version of our Old Testament that, uh, that uses a word that translates tribes, all the families, all the tribes. When Paul quotes it in Genesis 3, he uses the word ethnos, which sounds like ethnicity, which is exactly what we're getting at, ethnicity. So uh, reading it like that... Then we read this promise to Abraham, in you, all the families, all the tribes, all the nations, all the ethnicities of the earth shall be blessed. And what Paul is saying is God was preaching the gospel to Abraham in that. So from the beginning of the gospel being preached here on earth, it was a gospel for the nations, not for the individual. Not for the individual nation or the individual country, the individual people group. It was a gospel for the nations. Now, God initiates a relationship here with Abraham that carries us through the whole rest of your Old Testament. And and, and so we need to understand that in light of the bigger picture. What is God doing? God is using a people group, the Hebrew nation, to carry out his plan for the nations. Sometimes we ask that question. Well, the Hebrew people seem to be God's favorite. And then we just kind of get tacked on at the end. We read from the very beginning what? The plan was for the nations from the beginning. God's just saying, I am choosing to use your descendants, Abraham, to rescue everybody. That's your role here. 
Right? And so Paul asked in Romans, in our Romans series, what advantage of that is to the, to the Jews? Not really an advantage. They just got to be used by God. As we continue going forward, you're taking notes. The relationship between God and the Hebrew nation was built upon the foundation that God is for the nations. And his plan is to secure a relationship with all ethnicities and nationalities. This is really important for us here in America. We're, we're a patriotic people. We're also a little bit uh, narcissistic, prideful, arrogant. I, I, me too, right? It's, it's, it's the culture we live in. We, we tend to think we're a little bit better than the other nations. And you see where that gets really, really messed up when we also consider that if you're American, you're also a Christian, okay? Which is still, especially in the South, understood to be true. Other foreign countries will look at us like, oh, you're American, you must be a Christian. Now, we know on the ground that's not true. But there's a perception, right? That Christians are, Americans are Christians, and so therefore Christians are arrogant and prideful, and they feel like they're better than everybody else. Did you know that that is one of our reputations on earth as American people? It is. Not excusing the way people feel about us in any way, but that is truly the way some people perceive Americans. And then our culture doesn't help anything. When you walk into a third world culture and you see little girls wearing Britney Spears t-shirts and Justin Timberlake and you realize, gosh, we have, <laughs> right? So now what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to jump forward to the prophet Isaiah. So if we just read from the beginning that the gospel is a gospel for the nations. This is God's plan. If you jump forward in your Bible to the prophet Isaiah, so if you make it to Psalms, um, keep going right, keep turning towards the New Testament, you'll get there shortly. Isaiah is the first of the prophets. And early on in the prophet of Isaiah, through Isaiah, God paints a beautiful picture of the the full intention of the gospel. It's an amazing picture. We're going to read chapter 2 of Isaiah, the first four verses, and I want you to see this with me. So now here we are, fast forward. A lot of time has passed since God made this promise to Abraham. God speaks to the prophet Isaiah to describe what he's going to do. Verse 1. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So he's looking forward in his mind. God is speaking to him about the future. It shall come to pass in the latter days... That the, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the foothills or the hills. So while man here on earth tries to establish a name for himself by building these great cities and these great monuments and towers and poles and, right, and, and, and things to show how great we are, in what Isaiah is saying, you know what, there's going to rise a mountain taller than any other mountain here on earth. Anything that man was able to establish and build for himself, the Lord will, shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted above the hills. And look at this, and all the nations shall flow to it. This is a strange wording, very strange wording. If you spend any time on rivers, they don't flow up to mountains. They flow away from mountains to the oceans every time, Right? They don't flow uphill. But that's the description we've just been given of the latter days when God himself will be established as the highest mountain, the thing most visible on earth, the thing with the most, the one with the most esteemed name here on earth will be God, and something's going to happen. Rivers are going to flow uphill towards the mountain. And then we get this explanation of what the imagery that God is painting through Isaiah actually is. Look at as we continue. 
the nations, and all the nations, this is the last of verse 2, shall flow to it, and many peoples shall come and say. You get the imagery here? Many nations, many peoples. What did God say to Abraham? Abraham, through your descendants, I am going to bless the nations. And now Isaiah has this imagery of God being this highest mountain on earth, and the people and the nations are flowing to the mountain. And this is what they will say. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob, that, we may, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now we know that's where the gospel first launched from. Even Jesus told his disciples. Go to the, go to the ends of the earth to make disciples starting in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, all the way to the ends of the earth. And so here, back in the prophet Isaiah, says the word of the Lord is going to start in Jerusalem. It's going to go out from there. Verse 4, this is beautiful imagery. He, this is God, shall judge between nations. So he's going to be set up as a, as a judge, an authority between nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. You feel that wording again? I love this imagery. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares. And their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war no more. Two things in this imagery. One, all the nations are flowing like rivers uphill to the mountain of God. And, and here's what's happening along the way. They're taking their instruments of war, the things that they use to protect themselves against one another, the things that they use to set up defense to keep other people from taking advantage of them. These things they will need no longer. They will turn them into things like plows, working tools, and there'll be no need to train the young men for battle. So two things are happening. As the nations are coming to the mountain of the Lord, there will be no more war. No more division. Now, something significant needs to happen for us to be able to do that. What is it that separated us? Remember, languages. When you read the accounts of post-resurrection conversations with Jesus, Matthew 28, uh, and then the launch of the church, Acts 1 and 2, you're going to see something remarkable. Jesus is going to say to his disciples before he sends to heaven, as we just mentioned, take, my, take this gospel starting here in Jerusalem, then to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And then he ascends to heaven, and then what happens in the very next chapter? The Holy Spirit of God falls. That's what we call Pentecost. On the disciples, now apostles, and each one of them begins to speak. And as people walk by on the street, they're hearing the gospel proclaimed in their own language. They're speaking in tongues. What was done at the Tower of Babel, is undone at Pentecost as God begins this process of drawing the nations through the power of the gospel to himself. Peter gets up and preaches, and everybody's hearing it in their own language. If you're taking notes, the prophet Isaiah paints a picture of the nations gathering together in the presence of the Lord as a united kingdom where there will be no more need for weapons or preparation for war. What we need to understand, we're going to see this come to fullness in just a minute. This is how we were created, a singular kingdom unto God. We were instructed by God to be fruitful and multiply, right? Community was part of our, the DNA of our purpose. 
was to multiply. Chapter 2 of Genesis, get married, have kids. They get married, have kids. But under one singular nation, we were to bear the Lord's image here on earth, to be image bearers for the king in his kingdom. Through, through the fall, through sin and the entrance of sin and death into humanity, right, the whole thing got derailed. But what got derailed in Genesis 3 is being put back on track through the resurrection of Jesus and the launch of the church. Just to get a snapshot, what I want to do next, um, I think these verse addresses are in your, uh, your notes there. Don't, I encourage you not to try to turn to them. These are just in here for you to have references. I'm going to read through these verses all together. These are quotes from Jesus expressing his intent, his purpose, and his mission here on earth. Okay? I'm going to start in Matthew 4.17. I'm just going to start reading through those references that are in your notes. It says, and this is chapter 4 of Matthew. From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, here's what he was preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 5.3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said, whenever you enter a town and they've received you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. And he said to them, being his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replies with this famous reply, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus returns and I tell you, you're a Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I tell you, I will not. This is after taking communion with his disciples. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Then the apostle Paul writes in his letter to the church, to the Colossians, chapter 1, he says, He, being Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. You feel the mission of Jesus here? The mission of Jesus was and is to usher the kingdom of God on earth. I thought he came to die, yes. I thought he came to die, be buried, and resurrect, yes. These were all means to establish the end, which is his kingdom here on earth. Now, I picked the title of this sermon on purpose. Um, hopefully you assume I do that. Um, 
Yeah, so we as Americans are familiar with the phrase one nation under God, and we're beginning to see from the gospel that what God's intent is one kingdom under God. This was exemplified in the Hebrew nation as they're wandering through the wilderness with God as their king. The people rebelled, and they wanted a man for a king. God gave them Saul. But ultimately, what was God's intent? God's intent was to be their king. For whenever he said go, that they would come and follow. See, Jesus, right through the same invitation, come and follow me. Where are we going? I'm not going to tell you that. Come and follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Now, what we're going to do is flip to the end of your Bible to Revelation, okay? For those of you who are very familiar with the Word of God and have read it through, you realize we've skipped over, for sake of time, some really important, significant pieces of the puzzle that further illustrate this gospel story. That The gospel is more than uh, what we find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the fullness of our scripture. But what I want to see, what I want you to see, here, here it is. I want you to see that um, Paul is saying in Galatians 3 that what God said to Abraham back in Genesis 12 was the gospel. And it's the same gospel that Jesus brought to us that we now deliver to you. And then what we're going to do is we're going to go to Revelation now and see what God promised in Genesis 12 come into fruition and fullness at the end of the story. So Revelation, we're going to start in Revelation 1. Uh, This will be the second part of verse 5 into verse 7. It begins with the words, to him. This is unto him, unto Jesus. John, one of the gospel writers, he's writing down this revelation as the Holy Spirit moves in him. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him even those who pierced him. And all the tribes on earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. Beginning to see in Revelation, the full impact of the gospel is when those who have been forgiven are united into a single kingdom. That's the us. That's the us we just read. Who's the us? To him who loves us, who does God love? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And has freed us. Who did God free? I know he freed the Israelites, right? But Paul's going to say two more chapters later in Galatians that Jesus has come to free us. Who's the us? All those who God loves and who have been freed by the gospel. He's freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. That's God's intent. Now we begin to feel why division is such a big deal to God, don't we? Especially when the saved participate in division. You feel what we're doing here? We're running against the will of God our Father. Those who would say, I've been saved by the blood of Jesus. God would say, fantastic. That's a us there, not a you. And so when we're divisive in the church, whether we're adding things to the gospel and create a division, whether we're setting ourselves up, some type of isolated or um, some sort of elitist type of subculture. And, and again, we do it in practical ways. So when we take the gospel uh, to the, the, the Filipino village that we go to, we can either expect them to learn English so that they can learn the gospel, or we can learn Filipino, right? You, you feel the difference? 
We're not converting these folks into, to be Americans, are we? I mean, surely let's don't do that to them. They've already got the, the, the Timberlake t-shirt. Let's don't do anything else to, to mess up. I mean, God bless Justin, but seriously. See, we're not converting people to be like us. We're inviting people to come to Jesus, to the, to the mountain that's lifted up higher, that we should all gather there as one kingdom. It's remarkable to me that there have been Christians in human history who have justified, well, let's just go down the list. I mean, let's go to the, to the word slavery. Um, but we could just continue going down the list, right? Um, all sorts of bigotry and prejudices and, and elitism. And you study, when you study the history of the church, you're going to find all those things. It's amazing to me. The gospel, and it's the DNA, the fiber, the fabric of what the gospel is says what? The least and the greatest shall be united into one kingdom. That's the gospel. Chapter 5 of Revelation. We're going to look at a couple more snapshots. Chapter 5 and chapter 7. So now we've entered into this imagery of the throne room of God. And there's a scroll that has a bunch of names written on it that needs to be unlocked. It's an important part of Revelation, right? Who gets in and who doesn't? And so here's the, the scene. Uh, we'll see in verse 3 of chapter 5, nobody on heaven or earth is, is found who can unlock it. And so there's, there's great remorse and lament because we need to know, right? And so verse 3 of chapter 5 says, And no one in heaven on earth or under earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. Verse 4, And I, this is again the gospel writer John, he's now writing Revelation. He says, and I began to weep loudly. So God's giving him this imagery. And he's seeing the throne room of God, this vivid imagery. He sees a scroll. He knows the desperation of the people to open it and see what's on it. And as he has this vision, he begins to weep out loud. He says, I began to weep loudly. Because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So the problem wasn't that nobody wanted to, it was that nobody was found worthy to look into it. Verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scrolls and its seven seals. Now who are they talking about? They're talking about Jesus. This is how the gospel writers introduce baby Jesus to us. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the descendant of David, the descendant of Abraham. This is him. This is the one that the whole Old Testament is looking for. He's here. And so now, even in Revelation, John has seen this imagery, right, of, of Jesus, this line of the tribe of Judah. Skip down to verse 9. And they, came, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, Talking about Jesus, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from. Because so far we're just hearing about this rescuer who came from the tribe of Judah, a descendant of David. Right? It still seems like the Hebrew nation is, is the most important people to God. But look at what God has done through this nation. You have ransomed by your blood, you have ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Do you think those are just flippant words from God? What's he saying? I kept my promise. It's been a long time 
since I first spoke to Abraham. And while the people of God through human history have forgotten and remembered and forgotten and remembered and forgotten and remembered the promise, I have not forgotten my promise. I told Abraham, through your descendants, I will bless the nations. Here it is. From every tribe, every language, every people, and nation, verse 10, and you have made them a what? A kingdom. And priests to our God that they shall reign on earth. That's what we were intended to do in Genesis 1. To be image bearers unto God, priests of the kingdom of God, reigning here on earth. See, God used the Hebrew nation to fulfill his plan to ransom the nations from the clutches of sin and death. I want to look at Revelation 7 with you quickly, verses 9 through 10. So just a few more chapters to the right. After this I looked, and behold, now remember that imagery from Isaiah, the rivers flowing to the mountain. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. In another place in Revelation, John describes it as the sound of roaring waters. So this imagery from Isaiah is not just these little streams trickling up, but that the nations will flood to the presence of God. See, that's the full impact of the gospel. God's kingdom united. The fullness of God's redemption ends with a unified people redeemed to their original created purpose. We were created to worship and reflect his glory. Guess what we do in the end? We gather as a single people, a single kingdom. We worship and reflect his glory. The gospel creates a multi-ethnical culture, which is one of the beautiful distinctions of Christianity. So many of the world's religions are deeply embedded in nationality and ethnicity. And even though sometimes Christianity gets gets attached to, to the American culture, we see from its inception, right? This is God's plan to rescue the nations. God isn't satisfied until every ethnicity shows up. The Hebrew people aren't God's favorite, and if there's a little room left over, I'll offer it up to some others, right? Same thing with the American culture. We aren't God's favorite, right? And then we'll just save a little bit of room for a few other people. God says, no, I'm not satisfied until the nations are gathered in my presence as one kingdom under my lordship. God used the Hebrew nation to fulfill his plan to ransom the nations from the clutches of sin and death and to redeem to them their original purpose to be united, a united kingdom reflecting his glory on earth. It's a pretty big statement Paul made in Galatians 3. We could go on. Matter of fact, last year did a whole series out of that. The whole, whole year we spent watching the story unfold, the story of Jesus. I've got a couple of questions here I want us to think on now in terms of reflection. I hope that was helpful on some level for you to understand that when you open the Bible, you're opening up that story from cover to cover. From Genesis to Revelation, you're opening that story. Here's just a couple of things to think of. I want to challenge us just to be real honest with ourselves. 
Um, This first question, I think, is a very real question, especially in American culture, where we tend to add God into our busyness. So we've got our, our, our marriages, our kids, our careers, our hobbies, and I really need to add God in there somewhere, right? I just need to make some room for church. So in our minds, we're adding God to the busyness of what we do. Here's the question. As a Christian, do you see God as someone who has been added to your life, or do you see God as the king of a kingdom to which your life has been added? There's a significant difference between the two. If I'm not careful, I catch myself living like God is something I add to my life. I need to make room for God here in the morning or here in the evening or at lunchtime. And the rest of it's my time, but I'm going to add a little God to my life. See, that's not the gospel, is it? The gospel says, no, bring me your life and lay it down. Join something that's bigger than you. Join a movement bigger than yourself. It's called the movement of my kingdom on earth. That's the essence of what Christianity is. And so as a Christian, do you see yourself in one of those scenarios as someone who tries to add God to your life or do you truly see yourself as someone who has been added to God's agenda, God's story, God's kingdom? How about your personal identity? Do you find your primary identity as a citizen in God's kingdom before your hobbies? This is huge. Uh, We find a lot of identity in our hobbies in this current day and age. Used to be our careers, and still some of that, a lot of that. But but now it's it's the hobbies. Which hobby? Which which gym you work out in? um, Which uh, right? So go on and on. Even which church you go to? We find our identity oftentimes in in smaller things. And so the question is: Do you see yourself first and foremost as as a citizen, a child of the Most High God, and a member of His kingdom above and beyond your hobbies, your golf game, your fishing? And pick on the ladies for a minute. Um, your Pinterest boards. Um, your careers, still a challenge for us. Is God something you add to your career, or do you see your career submissive to your identity as, as a child of the Most High God? Uh, just a little bit deeper than that, even your ethnicity or your nationality. I don't know that we're all necessarily all Americans here, and if there's some who aren't, you're probably thankful that I was really honest a few minutes ago. Um, but the reality is we live in a culture of multiple ethnicities and nationalities. Do you find your identity first and foremost in the color of your skin and the language you speak and the government who presides over you, or do you see yourself first and foremost as a citizen of God's kingdom, regardless of what nation you live in? Sometimes we sit back and wonder, how could you move to a foreign nation, give up the rest of your life to go to a foreign nation? The answer to that question really is, is here. Because that person doesn't see themselves first and foremost as an American. They see themselves as a kingdom citizen. Wherever God wants to send me in his kingdom is where I'm going. Wherever I can get in, wherever I can be there, not to convert people to Americanism, right? But to introduce people to Jesus. Like, that's my mission on earth. And so just maybe more of a practical question here. When you pray and when you sing, do you truly approach Jesus, him, as your king? It's one other issue I think we have is sometimes we just we invite Jesus to be our buddy. And while he is closer to you than a friend and he loves you more deeply than any of your other relationships here on earth, he's also your king. So the way I like to word it is this. He, God is my dad and my dad is the king. <laughs> Both. And I just wonder sometimes in our singing and our praying, do we truly 
approach God with that level of reverence and respect and bestow, as Jesus told us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, right? Your name is the mountain that gets to be lifted higher than any other name. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. See, that's, that's Jesus teaching us to approach God as, as a king, the king of all kings. I want to end here and pray for us and uh, allow you to respond in any way um, that you feel like God is calling you to respond. Um, our prayer partners will be down at the front, as always, um, with the black lanyards ready to pray for you. There will be a few prayer partners at the back. Um, you know, as Joe mentioned at the onset of the service, you may have come into this room really heavy about something, ready to you feel like you want to give up. And so today, maybe God has spoken to your heart and you want somebody to pray with you or pray over you. Um, that's what they're here for, okay? Um, I want to say this to you as well. If you're here today and you're not a Christian and you've been kicking the tires on Christianity, you've been wanting to learn more about what it truly means to be a Christian, I hope today that you understand the fullness of what we're after here. Christianity is not a conformity into some, some American subculture standard or some religious mold. The invitation of Christianity is inviting you into a relationship with the king of all kings. He died on a cross for you and he resurrected from the grave to display his victory over sin and death. And he's saying to you, come be a citizen of my kingdom. Come be a member of my family. How do you do that? By faith and by faith alone. And the invitation is extended to you today. If you'd like to pray that where you're seated, that can happen for you between you and God. The most high God will hear you today. If you'd like one of our prayer partners to pray with you, one of our elders as well, we'd be more than honored to do that. But I want you to know that invitation is here. God says, I will hear from you today. Come talk to me. And for others of us, maybe who've been Christians for a while, and we get into that cycle of, of forgetting that God is a God for the nations and not just me, um, maybe today was challenging on another level to take a step back and to consider where your identity comes from. You know, in doing that, we're able to more, more likely respond as Abraham did. God, I'll go. Wherever it is, I'll go, Right? We're stuck in our, in our careers and our identity. We need to have all the answers before we'll go. And God may have been inviting you out of your career and your hobby and these small things, these shallow things we find identity in, saying, listen, find your identity first and foremost as my child. And then come go with me. Come go with me. I can tell you where it ends, right? This imagery from Isaiah and Revelation, this is where it ends. And we've got a fantastic journey to travel between now and then. Come, follow me. I'm going to pray for us today and that you and I will be open to respond in the way that God is leading us to. Let's pray together. Um, Father, we are so thankful that you have invited us into your story. And God, for so many of us, for so many years, we, we've seen the Bible as, as, as distant or arbitrary or complex and confusing. And today you just very simply showed us that it's one story. God, it's your story of how you've come to save and to rescue the nations because you love us. God, this morning I pray we could respond, truly respond to the fullness of the gospel. Uh, for any person who doesn't know you, God, I do pray that they would sense that invitation right now to come and to speak to you themselves. And God, for those of us who do know you, that you would bring us into a place of humility and and, and clarity, God, even understanding more deeply what we've already known. God, to see our identity forged, God, in our citizenship in your kingdom. And Father, move among us now as we, some of us stand, as some of us stay seated, as some of us move to the front to pray. God, move among us now as we respond.